You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Man, that's rough. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, it gets me every time. Uh. I remember watching that movie in theaters, and tears were rolling down my face. I thought I was seeing a comedy, and that's what they start with. Oh, it took me by surprise, like maybe it did you again. You know, I've been, I've been super emotional this week because I've been thinking about this message. I have cried more times than I care to admit. Uh, good morning. If you don't know me, I'm Nick. Uh, I'm on staff here with Illini Life. And apparently I'm a crier. That's a new thing for me. So if you're with me, we can, we can uh, stand in solidarity. Okay, so that's the story of Carl and Ellie from the Pixar movie Up. It's a little bit dated, uh, you know, but, but that's relationship goals, right? Like, that's what we want. <laughs> that's what we strive for. That's why, it, that's why it makes us tear up. It's a loving couple growing old together. They're by each other's side through hardship and through celebration. There is deep companionship, strong commitment. We long for that, don't we? Our hearts ache when we don't have it. Many of the greatest stories that we tell and that we rewatch are built around that premise, right? Pride and Prejudice, West Side Story, Gone with the Wind. Or maybe it was this, as a child, you were captivated by Wally and Eva, or Simba and Nala, Aladdin and Jasmine, right? It's everywhere. It's in our culture. It's in the air we breathe. We long for lasting, committed connection, for romance in our lives. And when we find it, when we get a hold of it, we fight to keep it. We strive to impress her just enough so she'll stick around. We compromise just enough to keep him interested. But eventually, all relationships, they exit the honeymoon phase. Conflict arises. Our true selves are revealed, and the other person has a choice. A choice to love us still, to stay with us, or to hit the road take off. That's the problem with Carl and Ellie's story. We just see the snapshots. We don't see the fights, the times where Carl worked too late and called home, and Ellie sat alone in tears wondering if he even cared anymore. We don't see the times that Ellie was withdrawn and absent when Carl desperately needed a cheerleader. We don't see them after an argument where each one sits in a separate room, feeling alone and isolated, questioning their relationship. Does it even matter anymore? We don't hear Nick screech in agony as Amy puts her ice-cold feet on him as they get into bed at night. This is a true picture taken from my house, especially at this time of year. More fights have begun this way than I, than I can even count. I hate this. 
But this, see, that's the thing about relationships. Right? They're, they're a lot harder than we make them look in our best moments, in the Twitter feed, in the snapshots. It takes work. We have to fight for them. Now, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know we're in the middle of a series titled Relationship Goals, or hashtag Relationship Goals. Fred kicked things off with a message on friendship. Russ and Susie off on dating last week. And this week, we're going to talk about marriage. Marriage. That's an interesting topic for a church of college students, isn't it? I mean, the vast majority of you here this morning aren't married. So why are we taking time to talk about it? Why should you pay attention? Why does this matter? Many of you aren't married. I think it's safe to say we've all been affected by marriage, right? We can acknowledge that. Maybe it's the marriages you see around you and the stories, the Carl and Ellie's that give you a goal for, something to aim for in life. Or maybe it's like me, your parents' broken marriage that resulted in divorce and wounds that you're still trying to heal today. Simple as this. A man and a woman decided to act like they were married, and you were the result. Marriage affects all of us. It affects us because we're relational beings made in the image of a relational God. Our longing for relationship and for connection, it's part of our nature because it's part of his nature. It's part of our nature, relationship, our longing for it, because it's part of God's nature. It touches all aspects of our lives, our relational longings. It invades our thinking. Our theology, what we know about God, is relational because he is relational. So marriage affects all of us. There's a need for it hardwired into us. That's why marriage matters. And if it matters, we need to ask what a good marriage looks like. What are the goals? What are the relationship goals of a Christian marriage? How do we live out our faith in the context of a marriage? Why does it matter? This morning I want us to ask, what are the relationship goals of a Christian marriage? Now for fun, I asked the internet to describe marriage because that's just a fun task. And I had way too much fun with this, spent way too much time doing this. Uh, But here's here's one of my favorites. 90% of being married is just shouting what from other rooms. A lot of you maybe think of your parents or your own marriage. This one's probably my favorite. Marriage means sometimes you have to apologize for something you did in another person's dream. This, is, this one is so true in my life. Amy will have a bad dream of me being mean to her or saying something nasty, and she'll wake up so sad, and it's so obvious. And she'll just be compelled. She has to tell me about it. And then I feel so bad, and I have to apologize. And I didn't even do it. It was her dream. <laughs> but that's, that's life. But I want, I want us to get serious, though, right? We're, we're Christians. We're in a church. Let's look at Scripture to look at what relationship goals are, right? Not just tweets. So I want us to look at a, a passage in the book of Ephesians when we try to answer this question. Remember, our question is, what are the relationship goals of a Christian marriage? 
Now, some preface. This passage we're going to look at, it can be controversial. It's highly context-specific, and it doesn't always sit well in our context. That means we have to do some work. We have to do some digging, some research. and We have to be careful to overlook our bias in that process. We have to look past the social norms of today to get at God's truth. We need to figure out what he was saying then and how that applies now. So stick with me this morning. Don't tune out. Don't be offended. So here's some of that background. Paul, the apostle, he's writing a a letter to the church in Ephesus, to Christian believers in the church in Ephesus. He's telling them how to live godly lives in light of the salvation they now have in Christ. Immediately before the passage we're going to read, he gives a summary slash climax statement of the previous chapter. He's telling all Christian believers to live godly lives submitted to one another out of love and reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. All Christians living unified in a respectful community, submitting to one another. He then goes on and explains specifically how this looks in different areas. And for us today, we're going to look at his his instructions to wives and husbands. So let's read our passage. I put it up on the screen for you. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There we have it. Ephesians chapter 5, the end of it. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your own wives. Both are instructions that are a continuation of the command to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Both are acts of submission. Both are relationship goals of a Christian marriage. Let's look at those a little bit closer. I'm going to start in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this passage we just read and this verse in it is is the beginning of what is commonly called the household code. It was a common literary piece in this time period 
ancient Near East philosophers, governing officials, religious leaders, they would offer instructions for wives, children, and slaves. Two parties. Paul, he's doing something very different here. He's offering instructions to husbands and wives, fathers and children, masters and slaves. He is placing obligation to on and giving instruction to figures of power and authority. Paul is speaking truth to power. This is revolutionary for the time period. Telling husbands what to do didn't happen. He told wives, children, and slaves what to do. Husbands, they had to provide shelter and food, and anything beyond that was whatever they felt like. Paul is saying, no, it's different in Christ. He's telling husbands, no longer be controlled by your self-interest, your selfish desires. Rather, prioritize loving your wife, caring for her, cherishing her, sacrificing. Paul's example for husbands to live up to, husbands to love their wives as Christ, as he loved the church. Christ, who loved us so much he endured the cross, is the measuring stick Paul lays before us. That's something we can work through. That's something I can grow in. The relationship goal for husbands is to love their wife as Christ loved the Husbands, lay down your life for the sake of your wife. Truly love her. Cherish her. This is a self-sacrificial love. A servant-oriented love. It's a love that says, I want pizza, but she wants Chinese, so we're going to get Chinese. It's a love that says, your career is important too. So I won't take that promotion that'll force us to move and ruin your career. It's a love that says, please tell me about your day and why it was so hard, even though I'm exhausted and all I want to do is watch my kids. It's a love that serves living that thug life. This is more true than you realize, men. Uh, it's a love that upholds the value and worth of your wife. It treats her with dignity, respect, and significance because that's what Christ does for us. It's a love that nurtures and cares for her, encourages and builds her up. Now in this passage, right, Paul also, he names husbands as the head of the marriage. That, tri- that can trip us up today, to be honest, right? That's a hard language. But here's what he's not saying. He's not saying husbands are the CEO of the marriage, the power-wielding boss, the oppressive leader. No. Remember, Christ is the model he holds for husbands. Christ, who triumphed over evil by laying down his life, is the model. Christ, who, who showed us the greatest display of strength and leadership in servanthood, is the model. That's what Christian leadership is. Husbands, men, headship looks like laying down your life for your wife's sake. It means staying home with the kids 
so that she can go out with friends. It means being the first to apologize in an argument, leading you back to unity and reconciliation. It means making decisions together about where your lives are headed instead of just pulling her along. Now, if we read this passage and we think the way to lead a woman is to remind her that she must submit and that we are the head of the relationship, we've missed it. We've missed what Paul is saying. If you find yourself in an argument with your wife and you pull out this passage to tell her to submit because you are the leader, you are wrong. It's not how Jesus leads us. That's not what Paul is calling us to. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Sacrifice for her. Love her. That's what Paul has in mind. Not oppression. Love. Well, what about wives? What does Paul say for wives? Rewind to verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. We've already acknowledged that that language can be hard for us. Telling women to submit to men is not popular in our society. It's not politically correct. But we need to be really clear what this passage is saying and what it isn't saying. This is a narrow set of instructions for a subset of Christians. We're all called to submit to one another already. Paul set that up before the household code. We do that out of reverence to Christ. Now, Paul is telling Christian women married to Christian men to submit to them. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Just like he's already told us to do to one another as believers in Christ. The relationship goal for wives is is to submit to your husband as the church does to Christ. And this isn't All women submit to all men. This isn't even girlfriends submit to your boyfriends. This isn't making women subservient to men. Wives submit to your own husbands. That's what's in view, that relationship. Women are called to submit to their own husbands and not men in general. We can easily miss this, and this passage has been misapplied when people do that. In fact, I would argue, uh, and many theologians do, little obligation is being offered to women in this passage. It's nothing that's not already been given to all believers. The main obligation is on the husband to value their wives, to love them, to cherish them, to speak worth into them. I think this actually continues a very strong redemptive view of women that the gospel ushered in and that Paul brings forth. What I mean by that is when we look at the historic context this was written in, it was a pretty awful picture of how women were thought of and treated. One Greek philosopher said, women were the worst plague Zeus created. Pretty harsh. A Jewish rabbi was quoted as saying, do not talk much with a woman. And And another rabbi followed it up, not even one's wife. That wouldn't fly in my house. Women, they were blamed for sin in the world. They were largely treated as property. They were a problem to be dealt with. But in Christ, that began to change. God's plan 
to redeem his special creation began with the gospel. It began with passages speaking dignity back into women. God's redemption, it touches all areas of creation. He's setting things back to right. He's removing the systems of oppression that have been placed on Eve and her offspring and elevating her back to Adam's side. It began back then. And Paul reminds us when we read passages like Galatians 3.23, where he states equality between man and woman. We, we see it in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as Paul addresses marriage and he expresses a mutuality of authority over one another that is surprising. God holds mutuality, mutual submission, a love, a respect, and a caring in marriage, strong values. We see echoes of God's redemption when we see things like the Me Too campaign that's been going on. We see it when we see men in power, twisted in their sexuality, dethroned because of their sexual abuse and oppression of women. We stand and we celebrate as God brings justice. You know, to those of you with stories to tell, we are listening. We believe you. And we pray with you for the day when these stories don't need to be told anymore because God has made it all right. Things have been set back to his design. Eve has been elevated back to Adam's side rather than oppressed. God is making all things new. And these are places where we see the gospel breaking in through the sin and corruption in our world and restoring our view of men and women. We still have a ways to go, right? We see that in our lives and the society around us. But back there it began in Ephesus. As Paul speaks to a patriarchal society where women, if they were even allowed to live at birth, were minimally educated, have little or no legal rights, viewed in all respects inferior to men. In that culture, Paul elevates them. He puts obligation on husbands to value, love, cherish, and sacrifice for their wives. And in return, he gives the instruction to wives to be no more burdensome than those of the rest of the legion. Submit to your husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That's the goal. Well, what does submitting look like? The clearest picture of submission that comes to mind when I ask that question is Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. In anguish, he cries out to the Lord, asking for help, for strength, for comfort. He prays for God's will to be done and not his own. He lays down his life. He sets aside his, his own preferences and desires. He acts selfless, selflessness. It's self-sacrifice. It's servanthood. Submission is servanthood. Submission-wise, it looks like it's saying yes to his weekend away at the men's retreat so that he can be built up and refreshed. Submission looks like listening to his frustration about a work conflict or sitting with him in his disappointment as he's passed over again for that promotion. Submission is treating him with respect and dignity rather than succumbing to the cultural narrative that men are dumb, stupid pigs. 
or could just sing this. Submission is joining in his joy, sharing with him when he finds the next chicken nugget. It's kind of true. The things that I get excited about are just super cool. And Amy, she celebrates with me. Submission looks like serving. It looks like loving. It looks like respecting your husband. So let's continue on. Let's see what Paul's final point is on marriage. It's verse 32. The, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it, marriage is what he's talking about, refers to Christ and the church. This is why marriage matters. This is why we are drawn to stories of beautiful marriages. This is why men need to be instructed to love their wives. Why wives need to be instructed to serve their husbands. We need a goal to aim for. Marriage is beautiful and it needs to be protected because it is a picture of the gospel. This is why Carl and Ellie are so moving. Because we see a deep love when we watch their story. We see self-sacrificial love when we see them on the screen. We see love that places the other person first. And it preaches the gospel to our souls. The relationship goal of marriage is to point us to Christ. It preaches the gospel. Paul calls it profound in our verse, right? And what he means by that is it's so otherworldly. It's so incredible. It had to be revealed by God. It had to be designed by God. God who designed it in Eden with the first man and first woman foreshadowed the greatest marriage ever conceived, the marriage of Christ and his church. He reminds, of, he reminds us of his love. He reminds us of the gospel every time we see marriage. Every time we attend a wedding and celebrate the joining together of a man and woman, we celebrate the picture of Christ and the church, a picture of our salvation. Marriage is to be cherished. It's to be celebrated, to be honored. It's a picture of the gospel. One author put it this way, marriage is two people being Jesus to one another. It's a picture of salvation to those outside the marriage. But the husband and the wife, they get the best view. They have the best vantage point as they live lives of self-sacrifice towards one another, lives of grace toward one another, as they live in a Christian marriage, striving for these things, they proclaim Jesus to one another. In my marriage, In marriage, we are truly known and, li- and loved despite it. In marriage, we experience forgiveness deeper than anywhere else in our lives. The one who knows us best chooses to love us anyways, despite our faults. It's the gospel. Jesus, who knew all of our brokenness, all of our sin, 
all the evil inside of us. He loved us anyways and went to the cross for us. Our spouses get a chance to be a picture. For me, no one has taught me more about God's forgiveness and acceptance than my wife. And no one ever will. No one ever should. Amy is my primary discipler. When I blow it and I sin, I let my anger come out in wrong ways and hurtful ways. Her tears call me back to repentance. They break me. They show me my need for Christ and for forgiveness. When I sin and I confess, she shows me God's forgiveness and she says, it's not okay, but I forgive you. Paul, he's calling us to live out marriages where both partners live first and foremost for the Lord, for Christ. He's the real head of the marriage. He always has been and always will be. Both husband and wives are supposed to live in mutual submission to him and to one another. That kind of marriage is a picture of the gospel that points us to Jesus, both as participating husband and wife, and as those who get a chance to participate, those lucky enough to get a glimpse of that. So remember, I said the question we wanted to ask is, what is the relationship goal of a Christian marriage? the relationship goal of a Christian marriage is to point us to Christ. It's a picture of the gospel. That's why marriage matters for us. When we get at that goal, we accomplish that goal by seeking Jesus together. We love sacrificially. We mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We accomplish that goal by wives submitting to their husbands, by serving their husbands, and by husbands living lives of self-sacrifice for their wives. Will you pray with me?